Alrighty, Ephesians chapter four. While you're turning there, just a quick reminder about our prayer meeting. Um, once a month, the first Wednesday of every month, we uh, fast and pray as a church. Um, uh, an email goes out uh, to those that are signed up to our email list and gives you the kind of prayer topic and a few of the key points that we're going to be praying into for that day. And then on the Wednesday night, we gather at 5.30 to, to enjoy a meal together and then uh, pray from 6.30 to 7.30. And it's open to everyone. We, we are trusting, uh, uh, and we're going to keep announcing this until we hope to see the entire church coming out and praying together every single when, uh, first Wednesday of every month. So uh, be, be on the lookout for some more information about that. Kate, if you could put up the first slide, uh, just with the Bible readings before we get into the... Uh, um, so I showed this to the folk last week, um, the series that we're currently in. These are scriptures that I want to encourage you guys to be reading over the next couple of weeks, um, if you get the chance to do that. These are some of the texts, not exclusively, but some of the texts that we're going to be preaching out of. And I think it's a good opportunity for, for us as a church just to be soaking in the Word of God. Um, so over the next few, few weeks, uh, try and f- find yourself in these scriptures at some point. And uh, I'll be asking the Holy Spirit for, 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 for uh, Him to be speaking to you during that time. We are uh, in the sense of marriage theme that seems to be coming through uh, today. We actually had the opportunity of officiating at Ian and Amanda's wedding yesterday, which was a, a glorious occasion. And um, Debs and I were reflecting on the fact that over the last 13 years, we've had the opportunity, I think, to, uh, we were trying to count, but around 35 to 40 weddings that we've officiated over the last 13 years, literally across the country. And, and everyone has its, has its own unique story and kind of treasured memories. Um, but there, there's some really kind of fun stories that we have from our marriage excursions. Um, we married a couple uh, who used to be part of the church called Matt and Wendy Thomas. And they got married in the oldest church in Pennsylvania. It was built in 1715 and still functions as a church, to, you know, a church today. Literally, on the, on the directions to get to the church... Literally, they had words to the effect of, when you come to the tree at the stone bridge, make a left. That's how rural this particular church was. Um, another kind of uh, sort of favorite story was Juan and Yvonne Quintero. Uh, Yvonne is Polish and Juan is Mexican. And uh, watching these two cultures come together in Midwest America was absolutely fascinating. We kind of sat on the sidelines and just watched this very strong Polish culture come together with this very strong Hispanic culture. Jamie and Mel's, uh, Sue's wedding was memorable. They've just run the, the Big Ten 10K. Good job, guys. Um, their wedding was memorable, not so much for the ceremony, although it was beautiful, but more for the dance party that happened afterwards. James and Hugh decided to have a dance-off, and Hugh ended up tearing his MCL and ACL as a consequence of this particular dance-off, um, and had to have reconstructive surgery on his knee. Um, one year, one week before he ended up planning the church. Um, Pekka Michelle, uh, they have a cool story. So we married Pekka Michelle on a beach in Miami, Florida um, in the summer. And Mike Massa was asked to play the ukulele to, to usher Michelle in as she walked. And uh, he only knew one song on his ukulele. And he made the mistake of thinking that Michelle was 15 minutes early. So jumped up in his black shirt and started playing the song 
and after 15 minutes realized that he had got it wrong, but it was too awkward for him to sit down, so literally played the same song over and over again on the ukulele with perspiration dripping down his face for a full 30 minutes. That was particularly memorable. And my personal favorite was doing Mark and Kelly Duncan's wedding, and another couple who, who have moved on to San Diego. We did their wedding in rural Illinois. And uh, during the party, there was loud music, there was dancing, and Debs and I had to drive back that Saturday night, so we, we left a little early. And I went to the father, you know, Kelly's father, to, to say thank you and good night. And somehow he thought I said, I love you, because, because his response was a very nervous, I love you too. Um, so without trying to explain, I just turned and ended up walking away. It was, it was particularly embarrassing. It really was. I share all of those wedding stories because the Bible loves the analogy of a wedding or a marriage to describe the relationship that we have, the church has with um, our groom, Jesus Christ. The, ch- the challenge that we face when we read Scripture and we see all of these marriage analogies is it's, it's in the context of Middle Eastern culture 2,000 years ago. And that can be a little bit foreign and a little bit strange to us. One of the most important things to realize when we uh, read these marriage analogies is the significance of the engagement. Now, the engagement is not how we see engagement in in our culture. The engagement in biblical culture was a binding covenant. It was as sure a thing as the wedding ceremony was going to be. But the reason they had this binding covenant, this binding agreement, was because the groom, for a period of time, needed to leave his bride-to-be in order to go and make certain preparations. These preparations involved, under his father's supervision, preparing a place for his bride-to-be to eventually settle with him. The son did not know when he was going to be able to return to his bride because only the father had the authority to sign off on the home being ready and also the bride being ready. So literally every single day that the groom was away from the bride, she would prepare herself and wait in eager anticipation of the day that her groom would eventually return. It was customary in those times for the groom, prior to his departure, to leave gifts for his bride-to-be, to beautify her and to honor her, but most significantly, gifts were given to promise or to guarantee the fact that he was going to return one day for her. If this groom was royalty, he would do something in addition to just giving gifts like jewels and, and, and clothes and what have you, but he would leave behind servants. He would leave behind attendants who would, who would carefully prepare the bride to be the glorious and radiant bride that the, that, that the groom wanted her to be. And rather shockingly, perhaps, what would happen in biblical times was these attendants would be castrated. They would be made eunuchs so that these male attendants or male servants wouldn't in any way take advantage of the bride or pleasure themselves with the bride in any way. Their sole purpose was to care for and prepare and get this bride ready. Such a beautiful picture between the the relationship that Jesus has with us, his church. The Bible teaches that we are eternally covenanted with Jesus. In, In Colossians, it says that we are in Christ and Christ is in God. 
That's how secure the relationship is that we have with Jesus. We are in Christ, and Christ is in God. And Jesus is not falling out of God anytime, so that speaks to the security and the assurance that we have in the context of our relationship with him. Jesus has, has left. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And he doesn't know when he's going to return. Only the father does when the father knows that the home is ready and the bride is ready. And Jesus, having left us, has given us the most incredible gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the one who has come alongside us to to beautify us and to bring us to a place of glory and honor with with the purpose of exalting the name of Jesus. But something in addition to just giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches that Jesus has given us servants. Jesus has given us leaders. Jesus has given us ministers, those who come alongside the bride and help to mature the bride and prepare her for the great day that the Bible talks of and calling it the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 describes this incredible day that we all look forward to. It says this, hallelujah. For, the Lord, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Don't you long for the return of Jesus? I do. I long for the return of Jesus. And a friend of mine says he's convinced Jesus is coming back in his lifetime. And he goes on to say, even if I'm wrong, he's one day closer to returning. And I, I love that. I, I long for the, for the return of Jesus. While, and while I wait, and I ask you this question, while you wait for Jesus to return, don't you want to grow up and live in the fullness of all that God desires you to be? And as you mature, don't you want to see his grace and love and power made known to a world that is in desperate need? And as you glorify Jesus, don't you want to do that alongside others and be part of this magnificent and glorious bride that Jesus is coming back for? And if you answered yes to any or all of those questions, then today is a message for you because we're going to learn how how Jesus helps us to grow up and to become this mature and glorious bride. I just want to say, if you are visiting here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're not not aware of what it means to be in relationship with Him, then I want to say this message is still just as much for you as well. Because I hope that that as we go through this message, you're going to get get a peek into the relationship that Jesus desires to have with you. And I'll bring some applications specifically for you towards the end. We are in this series called Eagerly Desired. It's our third week, and uh, this series is generally looking at what it means to, to live um, in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, but specifically what we're doing in this series is we are, we are looking at the gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, so that you and I, every single one of us in this church, can, can function uh, and, and be effective in the ministry of the gifts of the Spirit. A couple um, uh, uh, weeks ago, I started week one, and I spoke about the life lived empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I made this, what I believe to be an important point, which kind of summarizes the whole series. It is impossible for the church of Jesus Christ to impact a dying world with lifeless Christianity. 
It is impossible for the church of Jesus Christ to impact a dying world with lifeless Christianity that is void of the power of the Holy Spirit and void of the power of God's Word. And then last week, we we started a kind of a mini-series within a series discussing spiritual gifts. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 1, he says, Now about spiritual gifts, I do not want you to become or do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. And unfortunately, so much of the church in general is uninformed about spiritual gifts. He carries on in verse 4 through 6. There are different kinds of gifts. There are different kinds of service. There are different kinds of works. But the same Spirit and the same God and the same Lord. In other words, despite the diversity of gifts, despite the way that gifts function differently and we have different capacities for the gifts and the, the gifts look different, They are all in service to the one God for the purpose of exalting Jesus and advancing his kingdom. I mentioned last week, very importantly, that there are three categories of gifts. And I'm laying this foundation again because I don't ever want to teach on the three categories of gifts in isolation from the other two. We need to understand the broad context of the gifts of the Spirit. Every single gift finds its origination in the will of the Father, finds its origin in the will of the Father. Sorry, I made up a word there. Finds its origin in the will of the Father. And, 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 it's, and it's established in the person of Jesus. And it's, and it's executed and administrated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Next Sunday, we're going to learn specifically about manifestation gifts from 1 Corinthians 12. Gifts given by the Spirit to make known, to make manifest the nature and the will of God in any situation. And these are gifts that every single one of us have. Last week, we learned about grace gifts. These are gifts given particularly by the Father to every single one of us. They are are supernatural, yet very practical abilities that you and I have for the purpose of displaying God's goodness and grace. Supernatural yet very practical abilities and gifts that you and I have for the purpose of displaying the goodness and the grace of Jesus. We spent some time particularly looking at Romans 12 and 1 Peter chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, 28, which, which list examples of 12 gifts in particular. Now, I want to stress this point again. There are 12 examples of grace gifts, but we mustn't limit ourselves to thinking those are the only 12 ways that God can display his grace through us. God has a myriad, an entire entire vast way of, of, of displaying his goodness and grace through us. Those are simply examples. I want to mention three quick things in, in, in a recap from last week. Number one, firstly, we must remember that every single one of us is uniquely gifted. Every single person sitting here who is in relationship with God is uniquely gifted to display His grace and goodness to others. And we find that the way we find those gifts is by being in relationship with God and in the context of a local church. 
Often you'll find as you begin to exercise the giftings that you think you have, people will come alongside you and say, my goodness, Dave, you are particularly gifted in this area. Or, or Matt, you are super gifted in this particular area. And you begin to discover the gifts that you have while you're in the context of the body. Can I just suggest that there might be times that a loving friend or leader comes alongside you and says, you know, you're great in this area, but not so much in that area. And that's okay. That's not the time to pick up your gift and say, well, I, this church doesn't appreciate my gifting. I'm going to pick up my sandbox and toys and go, and go play elsewhere. No, it's just the body helping each other discover the ways that we are uniquely gifted so that we can serve God together. The second point we must remember is that the context for the gifts is always the body of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, excel in those gifts that build up the church. Gifts are not meant to be outworked by yourself. If your gift is leadership and you are trying to outwork that yourself, who are you going to lead? If your gift is generosity and you're trying to outwork that gift outside of the body of Christ, who are you going to be generous to? Or if your gift is serving, who are you going to serve? Every one of those gifts finds its outworking within the body of Christ. We each bring a measure of the grace of God. And as we all come together on a Sunday or when we pray together or at connect groups, we each bring a measure of God's grace so that together we reflect the fullness of the grace of God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, it is now through the church, through the body of Christ, the manifold, the multifaceted, the multivaried wisdom and grace of God is displayed to principalities and powers. It happens when we each bring our gift and together reflect the fullness of Jesus to our city. The last point to be made so we can move on is lastly, the purpose of the gifts is to serve others for the glory of Jesus. The gifts are not given for you or me to have a platform to display to the world how brilliant or, or, or gifted we are. No, they are a platform for us to serve one another to the glory of Jesus. Humility and unity are two key characteristics that I think create an environment in which the gifts can flourish. And then I made this statement and then from this we'll move on. When we function faithfully in the grace God has given us to serve others, not only do we release his grace to those we serve, but we are refreshed and recharged as well. And we become this, this conduit through which the river of God flows from his throne room through us into the lives of others. People are ministered to and we are refreshed as well. So with that in mind, we're going to have a look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to move on to the second grouping or category of gifts. Called, uh, and these are gifts that are given by Jesus to his bride. Now remember the, the analogy of marriage that we mentioned earlier. We're going to read all 16 verses. So follow along with me if you can on the screen behind. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. Let me just pause there for a moment. The word gifts in Romans 12, when we're speaking about gifts from the Father, is the Greek word charisma, which speaks of a grace gift. The the, the word gifts in this passage is the Greek word doma, which means a present. It's as if Jesus is giving a birthday present or or a Christmas gift, except in this case, it is an ascension gift. Jesus is ascending into heaven, and so he's leaving gifts for his church. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I want to, I want to spend the last kind of 15 minutes or so plowing into this word and, and kind of getting our, our hands dirty as it were, getting into this word and trying to understand what Paul or what Jesus through Paul is trying to teach us. I'm convinced that the goal of this passage, the purpose behind which Paul writes this passage, is to help us understand what maturity means. And maturity, from, in my understanding from this passage, maturity is knowing Jesus and trusting Him completely. Maturity is knowing Jesus. Now, that word to know Jesus is not an intellectual knowing. It's an experiential knowing. And as we experientially come to know Jesus and we know that he is good and trustworthy, it enables us to put our faith in him. It enables us to trust him. That for me is what maturity means. And in the first six verses, we need to unpack this entire passage to understand the gifts in their context. In the first six verses, we, may, we see very clearly that Jesus wants us to mature. Can I maybe even stress it like this? Jesus is desperate for us to mature. And this is the reason why. He is returning for a mature bride. Until we grow up, until we mature and become all that God wants us to be, Jesus cannot return. And Jesus is longing to be united again with his bride. Jesus is longing for that wedding supper of the Lamb where we are joined together for one as one forever. And so could I suggest that if Jesus is desperate for us to mature, 
Could I suggest that that should be a desperation in our hearts as well? Lord, we want to grow up. We want to be the radiant church and the radiant bride that, that you are returning for. Let's have a look at these first six verses very quickly. Most translations start with the word therefore, because this is a very significant turning point in Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesian church. Up until this time, he spent the first couple chapters explaining everything that God has done. God has, has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing Paul teaches. God has, has chosen us to be holy and blameless. God has lavished us with his grace. God has resurrected us and he has seated us in heavenly places in Jesus at the Father's right hand. These incredible promises, these incredible truths of what God has done. And the second thing Paul has done leading up to chapter 4 is he's prayed for the church and he's prayed for us that we would have the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know Jesus better. And then in chapter 3, he prays that impossible prayer. He says that we would have the ability to, to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Have you ever noticed that in Ephesians 3? Paul prays that we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. It's impossible except in Jesus, except by the Holy Spirit. We can know this love that is impossible to intellectually comprehend, but relationally makes total sense. And now he comes to us in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, and he says, all right, now we need to do something. There's something that we need to do. There's a response. And this response is simply this. Live a life, or in some translations, walk worthy. Live a life worthy, or walk worthy of the calling you have received. Two things there. The living the life is the something that we do of the calling you have received, something that we are. I just need to point this out. Don't read that verse in, a, in, the, in terms of being an individual. I need to live a life worthy of the calling I have received. Paul's not saying that. If, he was, if Paul was from the south, he would write that verse, live a life worthy of the calling you all have received. That's what Paul would have said if he was from the south. Excuse my terrible accent. But that's the point Paul is trying to make, friends. The calling of God that Paul is referring to is not your grace gift or your, or your ability to pray for the sick or your ability to lead people or to serve people, as important as that is. Paul is talking about the calling we have together to create a, a temple by which the Spirit of God can dwell, to be the, the, the church together that displays the manifold wisdom of God. He drives home this point of unity. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. He says to us, there's only one body. Friends, we are only part of one body, the body of Jesus. There is only one spirit. We all share in the spirit of adoption by the same Holy Spirit. There is one hope, one common destiny for every person seated here. There is one Lord. We're all placed in Jesus. One faith. None of us are saved in any way other than by faith in Jesus. One faith, one baptism placed into the person of Jesus, one God and Father of all. Friends, I can't stress this enough, but unity is the power of the church of Jesus Christ. 
Unity is the power of the church of Jesus Christ. If you read the book of Acts, that's what you see, them coming together with one heart and with one voice and with one cry. They lift their voices to God and the power of God falls upon them and they go out proclaiming and declaring the goodness and the greatness of Jesus. Unity is where the power of the church of Jesus Christ resides. God blesses unity. God pours out, pours out his commanded blessing and power where there is unity together. And so to that end, Paul says we need to do something. Look at verse two. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Then he goes on to say, therefore, be completely humble. Not just humble. This is not just so that we can be nice people. The unity of the church is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. The kingdom of God is at stake. Therefore, be completely humble and gentle. Be yielded. Be, be, be submitted. Don't be independent. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Friends, love is patient. Love is patient. If you, if you are a, a parent or, or, or an aunt or an uncle, or at some stage we're a child, you all will be able to relate to this example, but, but, but every, every baby, I mean, can you imagine if, you know, a little baby in, in, in your house, and, and they're crawling, and they, they're trying to take their first steps, and they, they kind of stand up, and, and then they begin to stumble as they walk, and they fall down. Love is patient. You don't say to the child, oh, come on, dude, you know what, just Give me a shot in another six months when you're ready to walk and then I'll, you, no, you're like, no, come on, try again. You pick them up and you hold them by the hand. You say, let's try again. You're patient with them because you love them. How much more so in the body of Christ when a brother or a sister or a friend, you know, does something to hurt you or does something foolish. We don't, we don't treat them harshly. Love is patient. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Commentators say, make every effort is the strongest language Paul could have used. Making every effort is not saying, well, they have my telephone number, they can call me if they, if, if they need to. Making every effort is, is saying, you know what, someone has grieved, someone has grieved me. Or someone has hurt me, or there is disunity, or, and I'm going to make every effort to see if we can reconcile. The glory of God is at stake. And so Jesus is desperate for us to mature, desperate for us to mature. And so to that end, moving on to verse 7, to that end, Jesus gives the church gifts. Look at verse 11. It was he who gave. Jesus, it was he who gave. Jesus makes an amazing statement in Matthew chapter 16. He says this, I will build my church. Notice what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, you will build my church. He doesn't say, you will build your church, your church. He doesn't say, I will build your church. He says, I will build my church. And the way that Jesus builds his church is, I will prepare my bride. I will get my bride ready for her to be mature and glorious. And the way I'm gonna do that, Jesus says, is I'm gonna give gifts. I'm gonna give these ministries. I'm gonna give these, these servants, these, these, these uh, uh, men and women, these, these leaders 
who have with clean hands and a pure heart are going to attend to my bride to prepare her to be ready. There's a fascinating verse in one of the gospels. I think it's in Matthew. It says this, some were made eunuchs for the kingdom of God. I go back to my original introduction when I spoke about the reality of some of these attendants were, were physically castrated to prevent them from taking their pleasure out on the bride-to-be. And that's the kind of heart Jesus wants, these ministers, these gifts to have. Not men and women using the bride for their own advantage or their own pleasure, but so dedicated to Jesus that they are castrated in their hearts for the kingdom of God so they can serve the purpose of bringing the bride into maturity. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I think it is a beautiful picture. In verse 11, Jesus goes on to say, he gives us five different kinds of gifts. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. This is a massive topic that we just simply don't have time to go into in all, in all detail. We can ask and answer so many questions about this, but for the sake of time, I need to just focus on one or two things. Firstly, let me explain very quickly what each of these gifts do. In my understanding, apostles, if I can use the word govern, apostles bring things together. Apostles equip the church with a heart for Jesus. Apostles equip and prepare the church so that we as the church can have a desire to, to go into the na- neighborhoods and nations to bring the gospel of Jesus. Apostles remind us that we are sent on mission by God. Last weekend, Debs and I were at a conference and we heard an absolutely outstanding message about the mission of God. And it was simply saying this, that so often the church thinks that mission is what they do for God. But the reality is God already is on mission and has called the church to be part of what he's doing. It's not so much that we're going for God, but God is sending us that word apostle. He's, he's, he's ejecting us out into the world. And that's what apostles help us to do, to catch that heart. Apostles govern. Prophets guide. They help us to, to catch God's prophetic future for us. Help us to get a sense of what God is doing in our hearts and lives. Evangelists gather they equip the church with Christ's heart to, to seek and save the lost. Pastors, God. They help people come into a free relationship with God, breaking off bondages, breaking off a, a heartache, and, and helping people come into a close relationship with Him. Teachers, ground. They equip us in being established in the truth of God's Word. What is the benefit of the gifts to the body? What is the benefit of these gifts to you and to me? Look at verse 12. It is to prepare God's people. That word, to prepare, in the Greek literally means to heal and to restore and to get ready. Remember, the disciples would sit on the banks of the lake uh, of the Sea of Galilee, and they would mend the nets in order to go out fishing to catch a great, a, a, a great catch. That's literally what that word means. It's Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, through the gifts that he's given to the church, preparing and mending and strengthening the nets so that when we go out, we can be effective in bringing in a great harvest. 
to prepare God's people for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. Are they still valid? Well, verse 13 for me answers that question. Yes, they are. Why? Because the word until. He's given these gifts to prepare God's people for the work of ministry until we all reach unity in the faith, until we all grow in a deeper trust with God and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Friends, Jesus is desperate for us to grow up. And to that end, Jesus has given us gifts to help us grow up. And now, just very quickly, the very last passage, and then we're pretty much done, is Jesus shows us what it looks like if and when we respond to these gifts, if and when we desire to or or respond to this call to become a mature church. Look at verse 12 through 16. Then we will no longer be infants. Then we will no longer be infants. Friends, can can I just say, we, we, we mustn't be surprised by immaturity in the church. Every one of us is not perfect and not mature yet. But can I say, don't settle for immaturity in yourself. Don't judge others. Let others work out their relationship with God. Don't be surprised by immaturity, but don't settle for immaturity in your own heart. Let God mature us. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men in their own deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. We need that. Truth without love is harsh and can hurt. Love without truth is sentimental and will do no one any good. But love with truth helps us to mature and grow up. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. All right, four quick applications and then we are done. Guys, you've been stellar. I know it's a hot day. I am literally cooking up here. But uh, can I just say as an aside, the next building we are moving into is going to have air conditioning. And I've been praying for that in Jesus' name. All right. The Bible says, declare things that are not as though they were. So there you go. I've declared it, I've said it, and we trust it's going to happen. All right, get our focus back on this. We're nearly done. A couple minutes, and then we're going to hand over to Matt. Just some practical responses to this message. What, what are some of the things that we can do as we, as we respond to this teaching on the gifts that God has given us through Jesus to his church? Firstly, this. A mature church made up of mature believers is one that operates effectively in all five areas of gifting. A mature church made up of mature believers is one that operates in all five areas of gifting. Now, some of us have our preferences. Some of us love the prophets and some of us love the evangelists. And yes, we do have our preferences and our our particular leanings. But friends, if we want to be a mature church, we can't pick and choose which kind of gifting we want to best reflect. God desires that every one of us carry the evangelistic heart that desires to seek and save the lost. God desires that every one of us know how to have the pastor's heart that can lovingly care and shepherd someone out of bondage into freedom. God wants every single one of us to know how to take the word and and basically, simply help people be grounded in the truth of God's word. 
God wants every single one of us to, to have that, that, that heart of the prophetic that can hear and discern what God is saying so that we can prepare for the here and now. God wants every one of us to have that apostolic heart where we are ejected, as it were, on a Monday morning and sent to our place of work so that we can see the lost saved. And that cycle starts again. We can't pick and choose our favorite gifting and say, well, we want to be apostolic, but forget about the pastoral care of people. Let me tell you, we will be a going church that is, that is impossible to see people cared for and loved. We can be all about God's, the, the, the prophetic word of God, but if we don't ground ourselves in the truth of God's word, we will be like Arnold Schwarzenegger, a huge, massive body, but he didn't come around on leg day to kind of work, work on those legs. We don't want to be that. We want to be a well-rounded, uh, well-rounded person. Becca, my daughter, who is a... Uh, I'm getting distracted. Let's move on. Number two. To that point, when we invite Ephesians 4 gifts for our collective benefit and for our personal good, can I encourage you to prioritize those times? Three or four times a year, we invite men and women who are gifted in these five areas for the purpose of maturing our church. Don't just come, don't just prioritize those gifts that reflect your favorite because you're not going to mature fully. We're not going to mature fully unless we prioritize those times. Three or four times a year, prioritize those times so that we can grow together. Number three, when we receive these gifts with honor, not with skepticism, but with honor, we receive the benefit of the grace that is on their lives. Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 10, he who receives a prophet receives a prophet's reward. When someone is recognized with a prophetic gift and we're not skeptical towards them, but we receive that particular gift, we receive the reward that comes as a consequence of the gift, grace of God that is on their lives. When we receive an evangelist who comes to equip and teach us how to go with a heart for the lost and we receive that gift with, with honor, we ourselves will receive the benefit of the grace that is on their lives. Now, oftentimes when we invite Ephesians for gifts, they are not gifts, people that you know. But I want to say this, it has been my vow and my pledge for as long as I've led this church and led the, lead the eldership team, and for as long as my wife and I lead, will continue to lead the eldership team, we will never open up this pulpit to people that I cannot say with integrity, you can trust them. That's why we are cautious about who we have into the church, because we want to be sure that if you don't know them, we can say to you, if you trust us, you can trust the person that we are opening up this pulpit to. And I say that to say when we have these gifts in, receive them in order to receive the blessing that comes with the gift upon their lives. And then lastly, as much as we need to honor these gifts, these men and women that are equipped in certain ways, can I say we don't desire to be like them. We desire to be like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment. He alone is the great apostle who's been sent by God the Father into the world to bring the good news of the kingdom. Jesus alone is the great evangelist who has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus alone is the great prophet who declares and reveals the Father's heart. Jesus alone is the great teacher who grounds us in the word of God. And he is the great pastor who shepherds people and cares for them, leading them into a place of freedom. 
The Bible teaches, and I'm going to end with this, the Bible teaches, friends, that you and I are not being conformed or shaped into the image of a person or a, or, or a great leader or a, or a church. The Bible teaches in Romans 8 that you and I are being matured, are being conformed into the image of the Son of God. That word conformed literally means as if, as if there was a mold and you were jello, think of it that way, you are being poured into the mold of Jesus so that your life begins to take on the shape of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 when he says we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. Every part of our lives shaped into the person of Jesus. That's what a mature person looks like. That's what a mature church looks like. But Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, not only are we conformed into the image of Jesus, but we are being transformed into the image of Jesus. Conformed, every part of us shaped into Jesus. Transformed, every part of us permanently changed into the image of Jesus. That word transformed literally means metamorphosis. It's where we get that word metamorphosis. A complete and radical change. Friends, when you gave your life to Jesus, Jesus didn't work on you to make you better. You died in Jesus. The old is gone. And you were raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit to be a new creation. And this side of eternity, that reality that's taken place in our hearts is making its way out. We're becoming the people we already are. Honor the gifts. Jesus wants us to mature. But above honoring the gifts, desire to be conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus. And so, Father, as a church, we, we come before you this morning. Lord, I, I pray with our hearts hungry and eager to mature so that we can be reunited with you for eternity. Lord, let us not consider maturity as something that will happen incidentally. But I pray that, that through this message this morning, something of the urgency, something of the intentionality of the, of the, of the, of the desire in our hearts to mature would, would, would come alive. I pray that we would be a people who would long to be conformed and transformed into your image. Help us to honor these Ephesians 4 gifts. Help us to become an apostolic church and a prophetic church and a pastoral church and an, and an evangelistic church and a teaching church. Help us to reflect these five gifts, Lord God, so that we can become the mature bride that you are longing to return for. We surrender our hearts to you today. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Touch us. Minister to us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Shape us, Holy Spirit, into the image of Jesus. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we honor you and love you. In Jesus' name.